So good evening everyone. Good evening everyone on Zoom. So we're settling into our new format of, of session. Um, just to share with you generally some of the themes that have come out of um, Dyson so far. So what's emerging is that um, when we go away and we do session in somewhere like Stroud, it's a bit like going somewhere for a holiday. You go to a, a special place to do it. But what we're doing apart from coming here is actually being in our own homes, um, in our normal routines, in our, more of our ordinary everyday life. And uh, this type of session, which is part-time, um, and, we're, and we're still in our own homes, gives us an opportunity to really, really connect um, and really pay attention to the habitual that we might experience in, every, in our everyday life as we go about our, our routine tasks of cleaning, you know, or making breakfast or, you know, washing the clothes or whatever. They're things you can get into an automatic habit over. And so the opportunity in this session is actually to, to really bring yourself to those ordinary everyday moments of being at home that we're so familiar with. <clears throat> now to go on to the um, topic um, of tonight's talk, to give it a title, I've called it The Stubborn Eye. Mm -hmm. Stubborn Eye. Uh, now, as a way of moving into this subject, one of the um, practices we do is thought labelling. And one of the important um, readings we do is Joko's um, little uh, essay on what practice is. Now, labelling is a very important practice. And it is a practice, as Joko said, where uh, we, we create our problem in our life by creating the I, which is centred around our thoughts and emotions, mostly. And when we label thoughts, we take the identification back out of it again. But may I say that thought labelling and also um, breath counting in many ways are preliminary practices that we really bring us eventually into shikantaza, which is just sitting, where there's no particular object of awareness and you're just present. It's like just being purely present with any, without any technique involved. Um, I'm a great believer in breath counting. I'm a great believer in thought labeling as good practices to do. And many people um, I find over the years from other schools, other Zen schools, want to start people straight off into shikantaza or people want to start there and they haven't developed the concentration through breath counting or the psychological awareness through labelling to actually get the best out of it. And so they are very, very um, important preliminary practices so that we really can just eventually give over to just sitting. <clears throat> but coming to just sitting is really the essence of, of it's, it's the essence of Zen meditation and it's the essence of a Zen life. Um, what is the I? What exactly is it? 
we could say, well, it doesn't really exist and so on. It may be true. There's nothing you can grasp, you know, that's a permanent self, nothing we can find like that. But one way of understanding what the I is that separates us out from experience is that it's, it's the resistance to experience. That's simply what it is. Alan Watts described the ego in a very succinct way. He said it's just a, a psychophysical tension. Uh, and when and we kind of tighten up as we separate from our experience. And uh, that creates the sense of I. What also creates a sense of I is memory. Um, so we have our current moment experience and like the wake of a boat, you know, there's like a, a trace left over in the memory. And we're conscious of our memories and we're conscious of something, the person who washed the dishes five minutes ago and who had a university degree many years ago and lives at Lane Cove, right? And so we have all those memories of that consistent person what we think is a consistent person then that builds up the sense of there's an eye in here that looks out onto the world and the world is separate from me. But the whole point of Zen practice is to see that we're not actually separate from life and it's by separating ourselves off from life that we create so much difficulty. One somewhat amusing analogy is that we're like flies stuck in honey. Like we want, we want the sweetness of life, we want the pleasure of life and we're attracted to it. And then as we get, get into it, we get stuck in the honey. Mm-hmm. Because what comes with the pleasure is also the pain and the unpleasantness. So we want the honey, we want the pleasure, we don't want the pain and unpleasantness and we get stuck there. And that stuckness is the experience of an eye which is separate, separate from the experience of life. So it's just simply a resistance, really. Um, If I was to ask you in this moment, at a time when, say, you were listening to music, and I said to you, um, who are you while you're listening to music? What would you say? How would you respond? Well, I'll give you a response. You could just hum the music, because that's all you are at that moment. What if I was to ask you, who are, who are you when you're walking? When you just walk, because that's your experience. There's not an I somewhere separate from the walking. There's not an I which is separate from the music. You just are that experience. But that's what we do all the time. I'm, I am listening to the music, I am walking. And it's in that use of language and everything that it implies that we create this separation in life. But who are you really when you're listening to music? Da 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 da. No? What are you when you're walking? You're just the walking, just the swimming. Mm-hmm. Just the laughing, just the crying, that's all you are. <laughs> so, human beings, instead of um, being able to just f- 
flow with life that is, to be um, absorbed in life as it is, step back. And it's a, we step back because, one one hand, we want to be engaged for the pleasure that's there in living, and we're pulling back when we experience pain or experience unpleasantness. And so we're caught in that. And then what happens, this is where language and words comes into it as well, where concepts comes into it. So instead of living our lives absorbed in the present moment of just being the music and just walking, we're caught up in a memory of the past. And the memory of the past has words and concept to it. So we're often comparing what's happening in the present with the past or we're comparing what's happening in the present with the future. You know, and as long as we're caught in those comparisons, right, we're, we're lost. In, we're, 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 not, we're not absorbed in the present moment at all. We're just sort of lost in comparisons. And that, that creates a very sticky experience you know, of going through life. <coughs> There was um, a student who came to a teacher once and said, how do I escape the heat? It might have meant it literally, but he might have meant it metaphorically, like how do I, how do I escape the heat of suffering? And the teacher said, go into the middle of the fire. Mm-hmm. That's how you escape. You know the heat. You go into the middle of the fire. Um, if, instead of escaping life by going into intellectualizing and language and words and memory and past and future, we can just leap. It's a leap of faith into the present moment. <clears throat> now, that all sounds very easy, but it's kind of it's kind of scary, you know, to to us when we're being locked into this eye that's had a sense of separateness. And I've used this metaphor before, but it's like if we were, it's like jumping out of a plane um, into midair, into the emptiness, right? And you're just free falling through momentariness. There's no ground. There's nothing to hang on to, but. Um, if you jump into emptiness in that metaphorical way, you don't end up dying. There's a fear of losing the self and dying in some way, but you just free fall. You're sort of endlessly free falling through the momentariness of life when you do that. So, this also brings in the issue of um, control and mastery in life. Do you know in our tradition you often, well you don't hear it in the West so much, but you do in in Japan, do you know, of a, a teacher being a Zen master. It seems rather pretentious to be called a Zen master. What do you what are you master of? Who is the master? Life is the master. But someone there's a different way when we when we practice uh, that we basically what we're learning through Zen is to relate to life or engage with life 
in a similar way that you do in Judo or you do in Aikido. So you're not trying to push against life, you know, and master it by overpowering it or controlling it, but you're using the energy of life and flowing with it, you know, and in a sense, there is a kind of control that comes out of that. One of the most obvious ways that manifests itself for me in, in life as a metaphor is through sailing. You know, so you've got the wind, like particularly when you're sailing into the wind, you've got the wind coming against you and you can't control the fact, you don't have no control over the fact that the wind's coming towards you, you know, and coming towards you at, say, 30 knots, you know, strong wind. But you tack into it. You're actually using the power of the wind to go into the wind, right, and, and upstream like that. So sailing is a kind of judo. Another experience which is intimate to me, like in playing the flute, um, with flute players, a lot of flute players have difficulty with what we call the ombreture, which is the, you know, your lips and how your lips are positioned on the, the whole. And, um, and I went through years making this mistake before I realised it, but it's the same point. I kept tightening my lips even more to try and get a better tone, right? And the more I tightened it, the worse it got, but I kept on tightening it thinking, uh, I'm doing something wrong, if I make it tighter, it'll work. You know, and I discovered reading and then experiencing it myself as a flute player, you just have really floppy lips, like really, really open, relaxed lips, and it comes out really easily. Right? And when you're in performance, there's a tendency to tighten up, but if you just loosen off, then everything just happens naturally. They're very good metaphors for how um, the eye is this resistance which sort of tightens up and then separates us from the experience. So, Shikantaza in some way is not for the faint-hearted because it is like kind of free-falling through empty space, but you realise nothing harmful is going to come from it, from it when you do. But if you're holding on to the eye, it's like you you're hanging on to the aeroplane, you know, and you're so fearful of jumping out. So there's a kind of leap of faith that's involved in Zen practice to, to let go of language, to let go of anchor points, to let go of, to let go of certainties. Mm -hmm. There's nothing to hold on to at all. And shikantaza really, um, if you do it over and over again, like particularly in a session, um, there's this sense comes to you that there's just this momentariness coming and going all the time. That's all there is, and it's like it's it's nothing you can you can hold on to at all. Not being able to hold on hold on to it can be the the source of our fear, or it can be the source of our realization. Realisation is just the realisation that you're not separate from your life. That, that's all it is. It's not, you can put it in grander words, you know, in grander esoteric words, but that's simply what it is. You realise that you are not separate from life. And when you realise that you're not separate from life, your you way of um, embracing life changes. 
See, what's happening through shikantaza and what's happening through pure Zen practice is before we started, we're just clinging to the known. The memory is the known, the words are the known. Mm -hmm. And when you practice shikantaza, you're stepping into the unknown. That's what's occurring. And because you don't know what the next moment brings. But if you step into the unknown, then life is um, vibrant. Mm -hmm. um, it's more joyful, it's more vibrant, it's kind of like it's an experience of discovery every day. But if you're stuck in the known, um, it becomes somewhat um, boring even, you know, if not somewhat superficially safe. <coughs> I used a quote from T.S. Eliot a few Dharma talks ago. Um, if I can paraphrase it, it's something along the lines of the purpose of our journey is to seek and return to the place where we first started from and to know it for the first time. Mm -hmm. And how come we can return to the place where we started from and know it for the first time? because we see it as it is before words arise. Mm -hmm. Before words arise. And, and that's to see it in a very fresh kind of way. In the Bible, I read that um, uh, Adam saw all the animals before they had names. <laughs> before they had names right? and their names were given to all the, all the animals and everything went downhill from there. <laughs> In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, and we come back to the experience, we see the animals before they have names, before the birds had names and of course we use language and rationality and so on. That's an important part of life. It's half of life. But if it dominates our life, we, we lose the freshness of experience. And to go back to the talk I gave the other night about tea and um, some of the words I mentioned this morning, that's another wonderful metaphor for living a Zen life. So the the tea host empties their pot of tea and fills the cups of everyone who's the guest. Right? Empties their teapot and fills the cups of others. And that's a great metaphor for our life, you know, that we're a giving of the self over to life. And then I presume the, um, the guests fill the, the host teapot back up with gratitude. Mm -hmm. The two-way process. But that is the act of forgetting the self um, and uniting with something. You know, it's emptying your teapot and filling the cups of others. <laughs> <laughs>